Let's take our Bible, whether you have the hard copy or an electronic digital version. We're going to open our Bibles to the biggest book of the Bible, which is Psalms. Yes. How do you find Psalms? Let me show you a quick trick. If you close your Bible, you have the hard copy. And then you open it to what you look, looks to be the halfway point. Ta-da! You'll almost always land in the book of Psalms because it is the biggest book of the Bible back in the Old Testament. We're going to that chapter, which is the longest chapter in all of Scripture, Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And we're going to try and answer the question, why are we so big about the Bible around here? People of the Word. So we know the books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, so we know what those books are about. We're trying to learn that. Genesis is beginnings, Exodus is deliverance, Leviticus, worship, numbers, wandering in the wilderness, Deuteronomy, law, God gives the law, Mount Sinai. And now Pastor Josh just added in the bulletin this week the next three. Joshua, Judges, they go together. They're both J's. Joshua, they enter the land and they have victory. Judges, the next generation, does not trust and obey. They have defeat. So Joshua, victory. Judges, defeat. And then Ruth. Oh, you like a good romance story? There's none better than the book of Ruth. The love story of a man and a woman, husband and wife, but more than that, God for his people and redemption. So we're learning this. Why are we learning this? Why do we bring our Bibles? Why do we have Bible studies for men and women? Why do we have small groups where we really get into the Word together in a small group, sharpen one another? Why do we promote listening to the Bible and Sunday messages and, and downloading other messages that we can hear and saturate our lives with, with this book? Why? Though the cover is worn and the pages are torn, and though places bear traces of tears, yet more precious than gold is this book, worn and old that can shatter and scatter my fears. This old book is my guide. It's a friend by my side. It will lighten and brighten my way, for each promise I find soothes and gladdens my mind as I read it and heed it each day. To this book I will cling. Of its worth I will sing, though great losses and crosses be mine. For I cannot despair, though surrounded by care, while possessing this blessing divine. Isn't it a blessing to possess this treasure divine? In Psalm 119, I want you to see why this verse, this chapter is considered to be God's marvelous masterpiece. If you're talking about literary masterpiece, you might be thinking of War and Peace, Moby Dick, Tale of Two Cities, the greatest of the great literature. If you're thinking about artistic masterpiece, you might be thinking about the Mona Lisa, Da Vinci's Last Supper, Michelangelo's painting of the Sistine Chapel ceiling. When we're talking about Scripture, it is all a marvel of God's handiwork. But if you're looking for a masterpiece of masterpieces, you turn to Psalm 119. Here's what one, one commentator said about this chapter. This psalm, is born out of love for the law of God, extols the beauties and excellencies of the written word of God in a way found nowhere else. End of quote. The beauties and excellencies of this literary masterpiece, which is the greatest scripture about scripture. 
176 verses, except for, let me see from my study, except for six of those verses, every other verse mentions the Bible in some term or another. 170 verses out of 176. And we're going to see from this marvelous text what God's Word is and what it can do for our lives. Because, friends, if we really, truly, correctly understand the Bible's nature, what it is, it will radically and eternally change your life and mine. So if you'll follow along, I'm going to read the first eight verses. And while I'm reading and you're following, would you look for two things? Look for the words that describe God's Word, the Bible. And secondly, whenever you're reading the Bible, look for the action words. And from English class, remember what the action words are? Verbs, yes. So notice the verbs. These are going to tell us what God wants us to do with his word. Psalm 119, beginning of verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. What's the first word of Psalm 119? First word. Whatever your translation is, I guarantee it's all the same. Verse 1. First word, blessed. First word of verse 2, blessed. Hmm, methinks God is pronouncing a double blessing to open this great, long, the longest chapter of the Bible with the promise of blessing. Do you realize, ladies and gentlemen, God's book is not given to us to bore us, to burden us. It's to bless us. God in the opening says, I want you to be blessed more than you want to be blessed. And the way to blessing is through what I have communicated to you in my word. Here's how Jesus said it a thousand years later in John 13, 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. John 13, 17. You want to say that verse with me? You probably already can memorize that verse if we say it one more time. John 13, 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. God says, I guarantee, I promise blessing for you through my word. If you'll read it, heed it, and live it, you will be blessed. And another way of translating that word blessed is happy. Not the giddiness that the world can pump up happiness through all sorts of circumstances. But then if those circumstances change, there goes the happiness. This is the holy happiness of heaven that fills the heart of faith through the Word of God. And Jesus promises it for us to be people of the Word. Now go to verse 3 and what's the first word there? First word of verse 3. I'm sorry, not uh, 4. Verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 4, first word. You. Who's the you? The you is the psalmist now talking to God. 
And here's what's amazing. After those opening three verses of the declared promise of blessing for those who are serious with this word, the rest of the 176 verses is the psalmist talking to God, the author. And he talks in terms of praise. Lord, this is great. Thank you for your word. Wow, this is blowing my mind. It's wonderful. It's too good. And then he'll intersperse that with prayers. Lord, I need to know this better. Help me understand. Teach me. Show me. Let me walk in the ways. Give me the strength to obey it. And it's a mixture of praise and prayer as he's talking to God. So I want to ask you, friend, do you? Do you talk to God, the author of the book, when you're reading his writing? Do you let him know what it means to you? How you value it, esteem it highly, love it, want more of it? Do you ask him for understanding? Do you ask him to teach you and, and sort through whatever misunderstanding or confusion might be troubling us? Oh, that we would talk to God and let the author of the book hear us speak to him as he speaks to us through that same word. All right, now I mentioned the masterpiece. All right, here, here, here. This is something, it could blow the mind of some. This is an acrostic. And if you don't know that, if you don't remember that from literature class, here's what it is. You'll notice in this psalm, 22 sections. That kind of look like paragraphs in, in our translation. They're actually 22 verses of one very long song. I mean, if, if this was all put to music back in the Old Testament days, as we believe it was, the hymnal for the Old Testament Hebrews, then this would be a very long song with 22 verses. Why 22? Because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Each one of these sections corresponds with a letter in the alphabet of the Hebrews. And here's what, what we find in each of those sections. Each section has eight verses. So the first section, what we read, verses 1 to 8, every one of those verses begins with the first letter of the alphabet, Aleph. Go to the second paragraph, and every eight verses in the second paragraph starts with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Beit. Some of our Bibles even puts the Hebrew letter on the top of the paragraph, maybe even the, the Hebrew character. You can learn the Hebrew vocabulary, the Hebrew alphabet that way. And so on we go. The third paragraph, every sentence begins with the third letter of the alphabet, all through the alphabet. That's amazing. Go home and try that. Try writing out a paragraph where every sentence begins with the letter A. And then another paragraph where every sentence begins with the letter B and C and D. It'll be fun when you get to K or Q or X. Probably can't do that in our language, but in the Hebrew this acrostic is a marvelous structure, and to do that and still make sense, it's not gibberish, just putting words in there because they, this is Hebrew poetry, they don't rhyme their words at the end like we think in English poetry. They have the, uh, the parallelism at the beginning. They all start with the same letter. It's a masterpiece in structure, and I think even in the way the Holy Spirit has organized that, he's showing us that this book is a marvelous, inspired work of God, a masterpiece. But probably more important than the structure is the content, right? What is God saying in these words about his word? What do we have in our hand when we say we're holding the Holy Bible, it says on the cover? What does that mean? 
Well, you might have noticed as we read through the eight verses, God uses different words to describe his word. The Holy Spirit uses words purposefully. Every word is planned and spoken by the Holy Spirit as he had human authors record his word. He chooses a real robust vocabulary to describe the nature of Scripture. Let me just point that out real quickly. It'll be kind of like a Tommy gun list. We're going to go shoot down this list of, of terms, synonyms for the Scripture. And with each one, let's consider what should be our response. If this is the case, if this is what God's Word is, then what should I be doing with it? All right, first word I'm going to point out in verse 1 is the law of the Lord. The word law is Torah. Perhaps you've heard of that before. Torah would mean instruction or teaching. So God says, I am giving you heavenly lessons for life. I want to teach you. Do you want to learn? That would be our response, right? If God's in the teaching mode, then we should be putting on our student caps. We should be willing to study and think, meditate to gain understanding, take notes, attend whenever we can to take in the Word of God, whether it's Sunday when we're worshiping together, whether it's our daily Bible reading, getting to Bible studies whenever possible, getting to our small groups where every opportunity I can learn what God's Torah is teaching me. Here's a second word. It's found in verse, uh, and by the way, Torah is found 25 times in this one Psalm, 25 times, probably the most um, common word used of the scripture. But we also call the Bible the Word of God. You can see that down in verse 9, where a young man can keep his way pure. How? By guarding it according to your word. The word for word is found 20 times in this psalm, and it's the most general word for communication. When somebody speaks or utters a sound, and isn't it great to know that the creator of this universe is not a silent, mute God. He is speaking. Step outside and hear his voice or see his voice in the marvels of creation, the majestic mountains, the vast oceans, the beauty of vegetation and creation speaks volumes that God is here and we are here in his creation. Oh, but then he speaks more clearly in this book, the written. There's his picture book out in creation. Here's his word book. He gives us his word. God has spoken. Hear his voice when you open the Bible. In verse number three, we want to walk in his ways. Ways is used 16 times in the psalm to teach us that God's word is showing us a path to travel. That's what a way is highway or byway, it's a path, it's a route. It's a life direction. The Bible warns us in Proverbs 16.25, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the ways of death. You ever gone a certain way and you found out it's the wrong way? Hmm? Have you ever made a decision you thought was good, it was right at the time, and then afterwards you realize, what was I thinking? Uh, do we not all at times lose our way? God knows that. He says, let me give you the way. I will show you my ways. Starting with 
the way to eternity. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The only way for sinners to be saved from our sin and become adopted into the family of God, forgiven and forever alive with our Lord, is to see Jesus on the cross dying with my sin, for my sin. Jesus paying the penalty that must be paid for my sin because God is just and He must punish sin. And if it's not me, then it has to be someone who will substitute Himself for me. And here comes Jesus to the rescue. And He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When I believe, trust, receive Christ as my Savior, I am on the way to eternity. But now I need some more help to find my way through this life. What's the best way to live life? To be fulfilled, to have meaningful, purposeful life, and not just mere existence. God shows us the way to live, the way to do marriage, the way to parent children, whether they're toddlers or they get to be teenagers. Or what do you do if they're prodigal? What's the way to handle wayward people? What's the way to do work? Whether you're the employer or the employee at, at work, God shows us the way in His Word. What's the way to live with hard people, difficult people, even hurtful people? The way of forgiveness, God shows us. The way to ask forgiveness when, when we need that. God shows us the way to take care of our bodies, the way to take care of our money, the way to... to to do vacation, the way to have friendships. His ways are revealed in the Word. So what are we going to do with that? God, help me to walk in your ways. To walk means to make sure every step of the way I'm in line with the Word. Every decision I'm going to make, every activity I'm going to participate in, everything I'm going to give my time, my talent, my treasure to, I want to make sure I'm walking in biblical, the biblical path for life. Way, God's ways. Here's a fourth word. God's testimonies are mentioned in verse 2, and they're mentioned 23 times. The Bible is God's testimony. Whenever we have a testimony service or somebody gives a testimony, it's a time to share from your heart. What's going on in your life? How has God saved you? Testimony of your salvation, your conversion experience. Testimony of how God has answered a prayer. How He's worked in your life recently. We share our hearts when we give a testimony. Well, here we have, friends, God's testimony. God says, can I share my heart with you? Can I tell you something about me? And we're hearing God's testimonies in the Word of God. So what do we do with that? Lord, help me to, to keep your testimonies. Help me to seek your face with my whole heart. People of God, we need to be seekers. And we need to be keepers. Seekers are those who look for something with a passion, with a strong desire. They're driven by delight, not duty. They don't have to, they want to. And I'm going to seek the Lord early, the psalmist said. Or as Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God. I wonder what that would do for our lives 
if the first thing we did every morning to start our day, even before we did anything else, we're going to meet God in His Word and spend a little time seeking Him to know His testimonies, to hear His voice in the Word. What, what would that do? You think that might change us? Might really transform our lives? And, and prepare us for a blessed day, whatever follows, if we seek God first and keep His testimonies. Things we keep are things we desire, we hold dear, we value as a treasure. And so we're going to hold tightly. We're going we're to value that and not let go what we keep. So we must ask ourselves, is the Bible, therefore, merely a trinket or a Christian decoration piece? Statistics say the average home in America has, on average, five Bibles in the household. And I was thinking, yeah, I guess some of my old ones on the shelf here in New Testament. And yeah, five. Personally, I wonder how many of those five are sitting on a shelf under an inch of dust, you know? Like that Bible is is nice to see, but it's only valuable and it's only going to bring blessing when we seek and we keep it as a treasure, not as a trinket. All right, let me quickly wrap this up. Uh, precepts would be the next word in verse four, word we don't use very often, but the psalmist says, "I want to be keeping your." I'm sorry, not verse. Uh, there is verse four. You have commanded your precepts to be kept. Diligently. A precept, found 21 times in the psalm, is a word for that which is a moral obligation toward God. A principle of right and wrong. Now church, you tell me, who has the right to determine what is right and wrong? Society? We just take surveys? Popular? What do we think is the right way for gender? The right way for marriage? Or what's the right thing to say about the unborn baby in the womb? Or what's right about this behavior or that behavior? We just go by popular opinion? Or we just make it a subjective thing? Well, whatever's right for you, what's right for me? You have your truth, I have my truth. And you know, every man does that which is right in his own eyes. Or would we say the God who created and established order and beauty and design and especially for his masterpiece, man and woman made in his image, that he has the right to say, this is right, this is wrong. Not the government, not the so-called experts, not uh, the popular opinion, but the Lord gives us those precepts. He also gives us statutes, verse 5, statutes, 21 times in the song. That's simply a word for what was written down as a civil or religious direction. And Israel had a lot of those. In the Old Testament, God gave them directions about how to dress, what to eat and not eat, what sacrifices to give, how to worship, holy festival days, and so forth. Most of which, almost all of which, are not carried over into the New Testament, but they were still, for God's people, statutes that they needed to know and follow. How about this one in verse 7? I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. Let's talk about righteous rules. Or some Bibles may 
translate that decrees or ordinances. That simply means these are God's legal pronouncements or guidelines of how to live. Um, how many of you live in an HOA? Have an HOA or you know of HOAs? Do they ever have rules or guidelines in HOAs? Yeah, they're notoriously, sometimes for pretty random, seemingly silly rules. But if you're going to live in that HOA, you got to do what they tell you to do in that neighborhood. You know, God has an HOA called the universe. And we're living in his HOA, and he has some guidelines and rules. If you want to live and live well in his HOA, he says, here are my righteous rules. They're not random. They're not mean rules. They're just to be difficult. They're righteous <laughs> rules. And I know what these three lads are thinking, and they're just representative of all of us. Who needs rules? You know, I could live okay without rules, right? Trust me, mom and dad. I would do right all the time, even without rules. And we all think that, right? Lord, I don't need rules. Uh, grace is enough, and I'm free in Christ, and we'll just all do the right thing out of our freedom and grace. Uh, rules are really restrictive, kind of limit you and confine you. All right, let's go down to the train station. Here's this big, beautiful, sleek, silver Amtrak train. couple locomotives at the front end. Coach cars, including the one with the second layer bubble, and they're sitting up there spectating. And then you got the diner car and maybe some luggage cars. And it takes off and it's going to shoot down to Miami in what, an hour or so. Speedy, safe, effective transportation. As long as the Amtrak is on those two narrow steel rails, right? It's going to go where it needs to go. It's going to be free to do what's created to. To do but what if that train says you know these rails are for sure restrictive i want to go over to the beach i want to go up and down the beach or i want to go over you know into the farmland see some cows and horses and go through fields and meadows and maybe go through the everglades and see all the gators down there how far is that train going to get if it's off its rails it's still a train but it's going zero titus you're right you know, uh, God says, I've got some righteous rules for you. Not to limit or restrict you, but to let you to go. To go fast and safe and well through life the way you were designed and created. And that will be your freedom if you will go by the righteous rules that I give you. Commandments are mentioned in verse 6. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. There's more than 10 commandments, the big ones we know. Somebody counted up, there's 613 commandments in the Old Testament. And again, dealing with all sorts of parts of Jewish life back then. And there's a lot more in the New Testament. Jesus gave us some commandments in the New Testament side. Commandments are authoritative orders that come from the throne in the palace, right? These are royal decrees or commandments. And if the King of Kings, is giving an order, who am I? Who are you to ever question those commands? Who are we to ever delay obedience to any one of the king's commands? If he commands us to repent, to turn from our sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, we need to obey that command. If he commands us to be baptized, to show that faith once we have 
accepted Christ as our life. And now we're a disciple. Obey that command. Commands us to be a part of the body of Christ. Contributing, involved, serving, worshiping, fellowshipping together. And obey that command. Husbands, obey. Uh, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I need to obey that one. Wives, submit to your wives, to your husband's leadership. <laughs> as we submit to Christ, I need to obey that. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is right. Parents, train up your child in the way he should go. Love your enemies. Forgive those who've harmed you. Uh, confess your sin. On and on. Commandments from the king are not options or suggestions. And all we can do is say, Lord, let me help me to obey your authoritative orders. And the last word in verse 38 this is found 19 times in the psalm, is the word for promise. That Down in verse 38, confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. A promise is a guarantee. This one comes from heaven. It's God's guarantee. How many have ever had a, a, a promise broken? Hmm? Uh, that happens in life, doesn't it? People say one thing and they don't do it. I'm not talking about politicians only. They, they get the, you know, we usually blame them. H how about the boss who said, yeah, you're the next one to be promoted? Or how about the raise that you're still waiting for long after it was supposed to arrive? How about uh, the friend who said they'd always be there for you? They're long gone. They left you. We all have known people with sad, broken marriages. Every marriage that ends, I am assuming those marriages all said, till death do us part when they made their vows. Promises are broken on the human level, but not God's. God's, you can book them. When he, write, when he says it and writes it, it's as good as gold. So what are we holding in our hands this morning? We're holding a collection of God's Torah, God's word, his speech, his ways, his testimonies, his precepts and statutes, his righteous rules, his commandments, his promises. And now what are we going to do with that? How are we going to view that? Philip Bliss was a famous uh, preacher, hymn writer in the 19th century. He only lived 38 years before he and his wife died in a tragic train crash. He wrote many wonderful old-time hymns. You might recognize a couple of them. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Or probably most famous, It is well with my soul. I like the one he wrote. Holy Bible, book divine, precious treasure, thou art mine. Mine to tell me whence I came. Mine to teach me what I am. I'm sorry, I just missed a tribute. That's John Burton who wrote that one. Here's Philip Bliss. Got the wrong one. Philip Bliss, sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see, wonderful words of life. Words of truth and beauty, teach me faith and duty. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. And they're ours, friends. So this morning when we're Packing up now and getting ready to leave. I guess we've got to decide what, 
what am I going to do today or this week with what God has given me in this treasure chest? What am I going to decide in my mind right now will be my response to the Scripture this week? Am I going to plan right now with intention in my schedule where I will be meeting God? Preferably early in the morning. But if your schedule just doesn't allow that, any time is better than no time. I'm going to get into the Word of God. I'm going to start learning God's Word. John 13, 17 is going to be my memory verse this week. Remember, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You already got that one half down. Work on that. There's my internalizing the Word this week. I'm going to the Bible study here, small group here. I'm going to talk to my friend at work with the Scripture here. I'm going to listen to the Scripture in the car, turn off some of that other noise. I'm making a plan in my life to be a person of the Word. And God says, blessed are you who walk in my ways. Let's pray.